0: Good morning, if we can find our seats, we'll get started. If you find your seats, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. I'm so thankful you guys like each other. That's encouraging as a pastor, just so you know. Exodus 4, verse 19. Before we get going, I just want to um, share... There, there's a number of new families that have been coming. Um, and we, we're so glad you're here, and I hope you feel welcomed and loved. Um, but I wanted to share just kind of the heart of what it means uh, to us as a pastoral team, what we, we we think it means to be truly a part of Country Oaks. And uh, we've put this on the website, and you may have seen these this verbiage around, but there's three... Three words that we have worship, grow and serve, and those three words just represent three different things worship we, when we say that we're talking about worship's a life of worship it's not just one sunday morning but but specifically we're talking about corporate worship. we want our body to come together as we 'll see in our sermon today we 're called to come together and worship God. You see this throughout the old and New Testament, the congregation or um, God's people, Israel, even in the Old Testament, New Testament, the church, coming together to worship him. And so we want our body to come for corporate worship, and that's what we do. Of course, we sing, that's part of the worship, we, we read, we pray, um, we even proclaim truth. In fact, preaching, I believe, is more about worship than it is learning. I believe the body learns, I hope sermons but more than that it's us sitting in agreement with the truth that is being proclaimed and saying even when you say amen it's saying yes truly that's what that word means we agree and so it's worship so that's one aspect of what it means to be a part of country oaks the other two aspects is grow and serve grow we use that word because we want to see our people growing and we believe that happens best in small intimate groups where you know people and uh so we want to see every single person in our church be connected to a small, intimate group of some sort. We have growth groups. Um, we like to see every everybody be a part of a growth group or something like that, where you know people know you and you know them, and um, you're growing together and keeping each other accountable and challenge each other. And just like it says in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. We want to see that happening, but that only happens if people know you. And so we want to see people get in smaller, intimate groups. And then finally serve and uh god has given us all if you are saved this morning god has given us all giftings that we are to use to serve each other within the body and um we would love to see every single person serving in some way and doesn't mean it has to be official uh uh, program of some sort within the church although we do need people helping out with child care always in the sunday school classes so um but we want to see you using your giftings to serve with that all said um, we are looking to hire. And Craig talked about this. And uh, we really want to hire someone that will become a pastor or will be pastoral. And uh, we'll see as a pastoral, role will maybe grow into that role. Depends on who God brings us. But we really want to hire someone that helps us continue our small group ministry, um, helps uh, uh, create more small groups, helps lead and train leaders to lead small groups, and help... Um, get people connected to small groups and so that's our heart as a pastoral team is really getting people connected to the body here at country oaks and so if you're new this morning i just wanted to share my heart a little bit it was kind of put on my heart to share that this morning um before we got going in our sermon so with that all said if you would look at exodus chapter 4 starting in verse 18 and before we get started let me just pray dear Heavenly father god lord uh, I just think every time I pray that I can address you as Father. It's an amazing thought. That you would adopt us into your family. That you would treat us as sons, Lord. And look at us as sons. But I know the church in in the New Testament, we hear that phrase so much that we are sons of you, that you are our Father, that we, I believe, Lord, take that for granted. God, help us to see the reality of how amazing it is that, that you are a loving Father that loves us perfectly. I mean, we are all sinful fathers, Lord, and we had sinful fathers, and, and many of us had fathers that were ungodly, and many of us had fathers that were godly, and I'm thankful for that, Lord, but, but you are a perfect Father. God, I pray that we see you and see your Father, least us to trust you and who you are. In your son's name, amen. I want to pick up kind of where we left off last week, and as I'm praying this morning, seeing the fatherly nature of God, or the fatherly nature of Yahweh. I ended with a quote last week by A.W. Tozer, which is a familiar quote for us, I've uh, said this quote a lot here in this pulpit, but it's it's this. What comes to our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. And last week I said, I hope one of the very first things we think of is a loving father. A loving father. A father that is completely, 100% trustworthy. Today's passage, we're going to continue to see God's fatherly nature. And I want to remind us that that God is revealing to Moses and to Israel and to us in the book of Exodus what it means that he is Yahweh. One of the first things he reveals in chapters 3 and 4 is that he is fatherly. He is fatherly. And so I have three points this morning. Yahweh is an encouraging father. Yahweh is a disciplining father. And Yahweh... Is a sovereign father. Yahweh's encouraging father, a disciplining father, and a sovereign father. So let's start with Yahweh is encouraging father. And this just continues what we saw last week. Look at verse 18. Exodus 4 verse 18 says this, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. we are going to see a theme in chapter 4 of fatherhood, right, throughout chapter 4, it starts with Moses, in fact, Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Moses is a faithful son. He goes to Jethro and asks for permission to go back to Egypt, which was appropriate because Jethro was still technically the head of the family. He was still alive. And Moses, as we see in chapter 3, verse 1, worked for Jethro and shepherd Jethro's flock. So he asked for permission. Verse 18, Moses said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers. I think that's important. He calls the Israelites his brothers. When you think about it with Moses, he's lived 40 years as an Egyptian. Now he's lived 40 years a Midian with the Midianites. He's lived absolutely zero years with the Israelites as an Israelite. Yet he identifies himself as an Israelite, And he calls them his brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, I think that tells you something, that he wants to go to Egypt to see whether his brothers, Israelites, are still alive. It tells you how harsh the labor and hostility was towards the Israelites. It's been 40 years, and he's doubting that they're even alive. But again, who is Moses truly doubting here? God, because in Exodus Chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That implies that they're still alive. I think in this one verse here, you see that there's still doubt in Moses' heart. Right? He he doesn't fully trust God's word yet. Even after everything that 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 he's been going through with God, with the burning bush, he still doesn't fully trust God. And that's why I think God responds in verse 19 the way he does. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Again, God responds to Moses' doubt with encouragement. He says, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. We learn in chapter 2 that Pharaoh has died, and there's a new Pharaoh that probably doesn't know Moses, or at least know exactly what Moses did to the Egyptians people that were seeking Moses' life for his uh, murderous act against the Egyptian have all died, and God is encouraging him, saying, no one remembers, just go back. In fact, this is the sixth time God responds to Moses' doubt with encouragement. We saw last week, right, a whole chapter, Moses asks, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. Moses asks, well, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you, Moses, who I am. Moses says, well, the elders won't believe me. Even after God says they're going to believe you, he says the elders won't believe me, and God responds by giving Moses three miracles, three miraculous signs to show the elders. Moses says, well, I can't speak. I have some kind of speech impediment. And God responds by saying, I am sovereign over your mouth, Moses. I'm the one that made you. And Moses finally just says, please send someone else. And God says, okay, I'll send Aaron. You're going. (laughs) He sends Aaron to go with him. God is so patient with Moses in these two chapters. He's literally slow to anger. Which is his name. So, In verse 19, God once again encourages Moses. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put and your power. Now, this is new revelation. Up to this point, these miracles were only to be done in front of the Israelites, the the elders of the Israelites. Now, God is saying, "Hey, Moses. By the way, I want you to go to Pharaoh and do those miracles." What do you think Moses's response is going to be? Uh, right, fear, questions. Well, what about doubts? But. Before Moses has a chance to respond, God encourages Moses. Once again, telling him exactly what will happen. Look, he says this, when you go back to Egypt, see that before Pharaoh, all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In other words, Moses, before you even complain, listen. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. That's the bad news. But, I am in control. Let me ask you a question. Who's in control of Pharaoh's heart? Who's doing the hardening? But I will harden his heart. I'll just think about that for a second. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart actually becomes a really important theme in the book of Exodus. And you see this theme continue even into Romans and into the New Testament. Like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned 20 times in the next few chapters. And it's described in one of three ways. Sometimes the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You see this in Exodus fifteen or 8, 15. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Other times the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In other words, he was passive in this, it was happening to him. Exodus seven thirteen. still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But it doesn't say who or what or how. And finally, God identifies himself as the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. Right? In the passage that we see right now, but also in passages like uh, chapter 7, verse 3, where it says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This perfectly illustrates the doctrine of Compatibilism. That's a fancy word, compatibilism. All that means is that God is sovereign and man is still responsible. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And these are compatible, in other words. They're in harmony, somehow. Another way of stating this is this. God is sovereign over man's choices, yet... Man is still responsible for his choices. In other words, man's choices still matter and are responsible and are meaningful. How does this work? Listen. I don't know. It's a mystery. The Bible just clearly states both. And doesn't and does it without any need of explanation. It just says both. Let me give you an example. This is a famous verse that we've gone over a number of times, Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, right, this is Joseph talking to his 12 or 11 brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, you are responsible for your evil choices. They were your choices. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God was sovereign over your choices. How do those two things go together? I don't know. In fact, we get in trouble when we try to solve this mystery through philosophical means. We should let this be intention. It's like the Trinity, right? The Bible just clearly states that there is one God. And then the Bible clearly states that there's three persons in this God. How does that work? I don't know mystery we hold those in tension in fact deuteronomy 29 29 which is a favorite verse around here at country oak says this the secret things belong to the lord our god in other words there are mysteries out there that god has not revealed to us and they belong to him they're not ours we just hold them in tension as both to be true but and we forget to do the rest of this verse. It says this, The secret things belong to our Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We are responsible for the things God has revealed to us. And in verse 21, God is clearly revealing that he is in control. Moses, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you, but but listen to me. I am sovereign over Moses, or Pharaoh. Trust me. I'm in control. Verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses, don't be surprised when he says no. But I'm in control. Verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go he may serve me. Again, we see this father-son theme continuing in chapter 4. God now being the father and Israel being the firstborn son, which I believe Israel is a type of Christ. Israel points to Christ, and we'll talk more about that later. But God is father. Israel is the firstborn son. And there's two important things about this verse, or, there's, or these two verses are extremely important. Um, and I think we as Christians often just kind of skip over verses like this. Without thinking. Because we're used to calling God our Father. But in the Old Testament, it's actually rare, it's actually uh, very rare that God is called Father. In fact, it it's only happens 11 or 10 times in the whole Old Testament, and always corporately always israel that's calling god father besides one occasion where it's the kings that god's going to treat the king as his son but that points to israel as a whole and it really points to jesus but every other time it's always corporately never individually in fact no jew would ever dare to call god their father individually like we do That's why it was such a shock when Jesus came on the scene and the only thing he called God was Father. You see the reaction from the Jews and the Pharisees and the people around him. How how could he call him his Father? In fact, the only thing Jesus calls God his Father besides one occasion, and that's when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time it's Father. Therefore, verse twenty two is really a remarkable verse. It's the first time Israel is being called God's son. Look at verse twenty two again. It says this You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. Serve really synonymous with worship. Let my son go that he may worship me. Verse twenty three. To say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And this points to the tenth and final plague. There's ten plagues, and the tenth one is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Right? It's the climax, it's the ultimate judgment that we see in the ten plagues. The nine other plagues lead up to this one plague where the firstborn son dies, and Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go, as we will see. God is telling Moses exactly what is going to happen. God is encouraging Moses. Yahweh is revealing that he is an encouraging father. Encouraging father. I hope you've seen that in the last two sermons, but before I move on, I just want to kind of again speak from my heart, and just to be honest, as a father myself, studying these last two weeks, I've just been convicted. Studying God's fatherly nature, how encouraging he is to his children, to Moses. Fathers, I just want to ask a question. I'm to speak to you for a second. Are you encouraging? Do you encourage your children? Do you encourage your wife? When's the last time you have said or done or gave a gift, something that an encouraging to your family, your kids, to your wife? When's the last time you have said an encouraging word? God is our example, and Yahweh is an encouraging father. Yet, Yahweh is also a discipline. Second point of the sermon this morning: Yahweh is a disciplining father. Of course, if you love your son or daughter, you'll discipline. Now, I have to admit, verses 24 through 26 is one of the weirdest passages in all of Scripture. Those few nervous laughs read ahead for everyone else. Well, let me just read it, and you'll see what I mean verse 24 at a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death then Sempora took a, or took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me so he let him alone it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision Start by saying it's interesting. (laughs) There's a couple of passages like this in the Old Testament and the New Testament where you get to and you're like, whoa, okay, what's going on here? In fact, when I was getting ready to preach through Exodus, I I knew this passage was coming. I'm like, huh, I wonder what it's going to be like when I get up here and start preaching on that one. You know, I think most pastors kind of skip over passages like this, but. I want you to hear what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture, and i stop right there. At this point, the New Testament really wasn't written, so this is talking about mostly the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, I was somewhat convicted by this verse thinking okay let's dig in deep and see what we can what lesson we can learn from this passage so let's just take some time and look at this passage first of all let me just say this there's just all types of interpretations I've read I don't know how many different commentators and every single one has a different interpretation of what is going on right there's more questions than answers in other words of the what is going on here unfortunately the ESV I'm picking on the ESV here, but every single translation does this. It's all translations. I I couldn't find one that didn't do this. Unfortunately, the ESV and all other translations add things that aren't in the Hebrew to help explain what's going on. I say that's unfortunate because by doing so, the translation becomes more of a commentary or an explanation than a translation. I wish that they would have just translated it and let commentators and or pastors explain it because you get a biased understanding of it when you read through it and thinking that the Hebrew says this when it really doesn't. Let me just give you a few examples of what I mean. Look at verse 25. The ESV translates it this way. Then Zemporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet. Here's the problem. Moses' name is not in the Hebrew. At all. In fact, his name is not used once in this story. The ESV, and by the way, the NASB and the NIV and many other translations, add Moses' name here. When it says Moses, it's actually the Hebrew personal pronoun, his. Which kind of changes the whole meaning. Let me just read it. It, This is a more accurate translation. Then Zempora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it. Why is that important? Well, it could have been the son's feet. Moses' name's not there. In fact, you probably have a footnote that says it says his not Moses. So they're trying to explain it instead of just translating and It's not even clear that Moses is the one that got sick, by the way. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him. Well, who's the him? Well, it's not super clear. Met him and sought to put him to death. Well, who's, who's the him? The, the only characters in this story that are named... Specifically, the name is Yahweh, Moses' wife, and Moses' son. Therefore, many people think that Moses' son is the person that God sought to put to death because he wasn't circumcised. And that fits the context. Look at verse 23. If you, this is Pharaoh, if he refuses to let them go, if he, in other words, if he's disobedient, what's going to happen? Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the context. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way... The Lord met him, maybe the firstborn son, and sought to put him to death because of Moses' disobedience to circumcise him. Finally, it's just super unclear in the Hebrew and just in cultural context what is meant by a bridegroom of blood. The ESV unfortunately puts an exclam- exclamation point there, making it sound like or look like Zimpora was mad or in an argument. There's no indication of that. It's not in the Hebrew. We don't know what is meant by bridegroom of blood. It's just such an interesting passage. But let me just remind you: Second Timothy three sixteen says, "All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching." Okay, so this is what I want to do. I want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is give my interpretation of what's happening here, and, and I want to be clear: this is an educated guess. And both words there, it's a guess, but it's also educated. I, I've spent a lot of time on this week trying to figure out what's going on. So I'm going to give you my interpretation and educated guess, but second, I want to look at what we can learn from this passage. And the amazing thing about this is, what we can learn from this passage is actually widely agreed upon. I mean, everyone agrees to, to the lesson that's being taught here. All Scripture is breathed out by, by God and profitable for teaching. That's the one thing that's actually clear. What what is being taught here? So let's get into my interpretation. Verse 24, at a lodging place. That's important. It's kind of like an inn. They're at a lodging place. At a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. I think this was Moses. And I think Moses was sick. That's how God sought to put him to death. And there's two reasons why I think he was sick. First, because it says at a lodging place. In other words, Moses and his family had to stop on their way at an inn, and they were stuck there for some reason second reason I think Moses was sick is because he's not mentioned anywhere else. He wasn't the one that did the circumcision. He should have been the one, but he wasn't. So I think he was too sick or like on his deathbed. Because God was after him to put him to death. Verse 25, Then Zampora took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. Somehow poor knew that Moses was sick... Because Moses didn't circumcise one of his sons. Therefore she did it to save Moses' life. And touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Again, this is my guess. I believe this was some ritual that came from the Minyanites. Even the phrase bridegroom of blood, and again, this is an educated guess, that word bridegroom in Hebrew is actually related to a Arabic word, and so I think it's not a Hebrew word, I think it's something that was probably translated from the Arabic, the language that probably was the language the Midians spoke long story, I think this was some kind of ritual that they did verse 26, so he, that's God let him, that's Moses, alone in other words, Moses got well it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision I don't think Sampora is mad. In fact, I think Sampora is probably somewhat of a hero here. Moses didn't do what he was supposed to do, and Sampora stepped up because he was sick and did it. One of the reasons I think that is because the first four chapters of Exodus, all the heroes so far have been women. And Moses has been someone that's been kind of failing over over and over and over and over again. Moses' life was spared because of the actions of his wife. Well, that's my interpretation. Again, that's an educated guess. But here's the implication. Here's what we can learn. The application. The application is this. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. Like a loving father disciplines his son. The real question in this passage, it's not the what. The what is super unclear. What happened is super unclear. The important question is the why. And the why is actually very clear. God sought to put Moses to death. I think it was Moses. And here's the why because Moses didn't circumcise his son. Zimbabwe ended up doing what Moses should have done as a father. In other words, Moses was disobedient at this point to God. Which leads to other questions, and I think one of them is this. So why is circumcision so important? I mean, think about this. Moses has been arguing with God for two chapters. Like God says, go to Egypt, and Moses says, wait a second. <laughs> what about this, this, and this, making excuses? And God patiently encourages him along the way. Then Moses fails to circumcise his son, and God threatens to take his very life. Why was circumcision so important? Well, first, it was a distinguishing mark of God's people, right? It separated God's people in the Old Testament from all the other nations. In fact, as we go on in Exodus, you're going to see there's a bunch of laws that God makes specifically to separate Israel from the other nations, and and that word holiness means separation, that they would be a holy people to God. But second, and more importantly, circumcision was the covenantal sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, Genesis 17, 9 says this, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings uh, offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It's important. God makes it clear. I mean, it can't be more clear than that. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Then in verse 14, he says this. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. has broken my covenant therefore if Moses intended to serve God as the leader of God's covenantal people he had a covenant obligation to circumcise his son Moses failed to do so so this was a big deal therefore God disciplines Moses and this is important out of love out of love Moses was in sin, so God brought sickness, even to the point of death. Let that settle in for a second. That's how serious God takes holiness. You know, in the church today, as you just look across our nation and Western civilization, it just feel like there's this lack of emphasis on holiness and. Rep- Lack of churches that take holiness, not just God's holiness, but the church itself being holy to God, serious. Lack of reverence in worship. And the churches that do take holiness and reverence seriously are often seen as legalistic. Churches that that truly do church discipline seriously, or churches that that call out false teaching, or even name false teachers—the job of the pastor, by the way, to protect the flock—are seen as narrow-minded, dogmatic, unloving, legalistic. And you might be thinking, "But Nathan, this, this is Israel. This is the Old Testament. This is Moses. We're New Testament believers. It's all about grace in the New Testament. It's all about God's love in the New Testament." And it is. Listen, Moses' sickness was grace. It was grace. God was purging out sin within Mer- Moses' life. That's grace. That's love. Think about this. What was the 10th plague? That God just told Moses. What is the tenth plague? What's the the ultimate ultimate judgment on Egypt? Everything is going to this one plague where they finally will let will let Israel go. What is it? The death of the firstborn. Well, the death of the firstborn. The death of who? Who's firstborn? The Egyptians, right? Those who are not of God's people. Well, what does Genesis seventeen fourteen say? any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Moses' son wasn't circumcised. Who do you think the tenth plague would have affected? Listen, God was being gracious to Moses by disciplining him. Let me just show you this another way. Because we see passages like this, especially in the Old Testament. we go, See, that's why we say the, the Old Testament is this God of wrath. I don't see that passage as a God of wrath. I see that passage as a fatherly God disciplining a son that's in rebellion. And it's not just in the, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign, right? The Abrahamic covenant. In the New Testament, circumcision is no longer required Instead, we have two sacraments, or signs of the New Testament covenant. We have baptism and communion, which both are required. And God takes these both very seriously. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. say required, they're not required for salvation. But they're required for obedience. To be obedient, God has called you to be baptized. And he's called us to remember him at the Lord's table. Salvation is by grace, not through any sacrament or works. But it doesn't make ordinances, what God has called us to do not important. Again, look at verse 17 here. But in the following instructions, I do not uh, commend you because when you come together let me just stop there. You're going to see this phrase over and over again. When you come together, you know what that implies? That the church will come together and worship actually one of the passages that was just convicted by when we weren't coming together and taking the Lord's Supper together. That we are called to come together and take the Lord's Supper. It's one of the reasons we opened up our church earlier than the government allowed us to. Or said we could. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. In other words, Paul is saying, man, I'm having a hard time believing what I'm hearing is happening within the church. That there's these ugly divisions within the church, that you guys are not united. Verse 19, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are, are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together together. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, what you guys are doing is not the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, this is why, for in eating, each one of you um, ahead with his own meal, goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Just explain kind of what's happening here. The church would come together and eat a meal, a potluck, a baptist, exactly what they were doing. They would bring food together and they would eat together. Before, after, or during, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper during this meal. And what would happen is the rich would bring a ton of food and wine and stuff themselves and get drunk. And they wouldn't share with the poor. The poor sat there and just watched. Hungry. So this is what Paul says in verse 22. What? what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Somehow they were proud of what they were doing. Look how open-minded we are, getting drunk on the Paul asks, "Shall I commend you in this?" No, I will not. And how closed-minded are you, Paul? And we laugh, but Paul took the holiness of the church extremely serious. And this church was dragging the name of the Lord through the mud. And he also took the Lord's Supper extremely serious, and he gives instruction and. In in verse 23, and this is what we read when we take communion the Lord's Supper together. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. We are called to come together and take the Lord's Supper. In fact, the first Sunday we came together, that's what we did. We refused to do it until we came together. We didn't do it online. We just had a conviction that that we needed to be together to do it because it's part of the purpose that we are in unity together, celebrating what Christ has done for us. It's important. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. It was made in Jesus' blood, his death on the cross. That means it's a big deal. Do this. It's a command. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a new covenant sign. It's just like circumcision in the Old Testament. We are God's covenantal people. We have outward signs that show that. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. God's commanded us to do these things. And listen, they should be joy-filled. Both of them. Every time a new believer comes up and says, I want to be baptized, and he gets baptized, showing what's happened to him spiritually. It's a physical demonstration and proclaiming what's happened to him Spiritually. We should be joy-filled. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, remember that Christ died on the cross for our sins, it should be joy-filled. But Paul gives a warning in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What's an unworthy manner? What the Corinthians were doing in division. If you come to the Lord's table and we have a time of reflection before we take communion and you are at odds with someone within the church or you need to go ask for forgiveness to someone within the church or you haven't done everything you can to bring unity with someone in the church there's a warning here, don't take communion go find that brother and ask for forgiveness work on that relationship pride, drunkenness, gluttony. With unrepented sin, in other words. There are sins in your life that, that you refuse to turn from and ask for forgiveness. That's an unworthy manner. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats and drinks or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood or the body and blood of the Lord. Now that's a big deal. Therefore, 28, let a person examine himself. We should be examining ourselves constantly. There's sin in my life I need to repent from, I need to turn from, I need to ask for forgiveness for. And you know what? The Lord's Supper is a great time for that. That's why we take a time, a moment of silence, to look at our hearts. Anything that that I'm unrepented, that I know I should be doing, that I'm not doing because I don't trust God. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Not just the Old Testament. In the church of Corinth, many were weak, many were sick and ill and some have died because they took the Lord's suffering in an unworthy manner now let me be very very clear on this not all weakness and illness is God's discipline or judgment on a particular sin but verse 31. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. You hear that? We are disciplined. So that, why is he disciplining us? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. God loves his people, so he will discipline them so they will not be condemned along with the world. You might be asking, well, what about those few that died? sounds more like judgment than discipline. Well, here's my interpretation of this. If those people were Christians, which I believe they were, what happened to them? That's grace. I believe sometimes God says, I'm just taking it home. God is a loving Father, and He will discipline those He loves. Let me just give you an example of this, right? Because loving Father is discipline. I discipline my children to save them, from greater dangers. In fact, I tell my children all the time, do not go out in the street. <laughs> if you go out in the street, you're going to get a spanking. Why would I give a spanking to my child? Because a spanking is way less the big deal than getting hit by a car. I discipline my child out of love to protect them from Yahweh does the same thing. Yahweh is a disciplining father. He disciplines those he loves. Listen, fathers and mothers, there's kind of a trend of just being friends with your children. Listen, you're not called to be friends with your children. You're called to be might be friendship in there but you're called to be parents first and that means disciplining the children a loving mom and dad will discipline the children, just like father does turn just like the um, god does turn to hebrews 12 verse 5 In verse five, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children or as sons? Uh, The author of Hebrews is going to quote the Old Testament here. Says, "Have you forgot that you, you are sons?" And he quotes the Old Testament, says this: "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the the one He loves." and chastens every son whom re, um, he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an Ill- illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Listen, God disciplines those he loves. Because Yahweh is a loving Father, and out of love, He disciplines those he loves. He was disciplining Moses that he would not be condemned along with the world, condemned along with the Egyptians leads me to my last point, and we'll go through this extremely quickly. If you turn back to Exodus 4, verse 27, Yahweh is also a sovereign father. Verse 27. It says this, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had um, commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. I'm starting to see Moses actually obeying and doing what God has called him to do. We have two chapters now and two sermons of, of, of Moses whining, right? <laughs> Moses whining to God. Says so it seems like a, a, a three year old arguing, making excuses, saying, "Well, the Israelites won't listen to me. They're, they're not going to believe." Two chapters, excuse after excuse after excuse, look at verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and and did the signs in the sight of the people, verse 31, and the people believed. (laughs) That's it. You get four words. And the people believed. Exactly what God said would happen. The people believed. Two chapters of whining, and the people believed. Listen, God is sovereign over everything. R.C. Sproul is known for saying, and I just love this phrase, there isn't a maverick molecule in the universe. Molecules on the most distant stars and there are galaxies out there. There isn't a maverick molecule in the universe. There's nothing outside of God's control. God is in control, He is all-powerful, and here's the good news. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been adopted into his family, therefore he is your father. you ever gotten that argument with people on the playground as a kid? My father could beat your father up. Sovereign God of the universe, all-powerful is our father. That's why it says in Romans 8, 28, it tells us that God causes all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. God is a sovereign father. And God's sovereignty is seen throughout chapters 3 and 4. Exodus 4 verse 10 it says but Moses said to the Lord oh my Lord I am not eloquent in speech right? I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. You have some kind of speech impediment and Moses is scared, in other words. He doesn't want to go. And what does God say? Verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Moses, I am sovereign over your mouth. And in verse 21, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have Put in your power, let me just stop there. Miracles themselves scream, God is all-powerful, and he's going to show it. But I will harden his, that's Pharaoh's heart, right? I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In other words, Moses, I'm even sovereign over men. Don't fear, fear Pharaoh. Even he is under my control. I'm in control everything, not Pharaoh in fact, Proverbs 21 1 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord he turns it wherever he wills God is a sovereign father, which I know brings up a lot of questions there's a lot of problems in our thinking when we try to to spell that out but listen, it also brings so much comfort Look what God is showing Moses. He's saying, Moses, I am am so much more powerful than any of your greatest fears. One of them being Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh is a stream of water in my hands. I will turn him wherever I will. Listen, if you're a child of God this morning, in other words, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been adopted into his family, God's sovereignty and God's power should bring so much comfort. Your life is never out of control. You may feel out of control. It's definitely out of your control. It's never out of God's control. God is more powerful than any of your greatest fears, any circumstance. And I know there's people in here that have found themselves in some Ridiculously tough circumstances. Any circumstance that you find yourself in is not outside of God's control. God just asks you to trust Him and obey His words. Yahweh is an encouraging Father, Yahweh is a disciplining Father, Yahweh is a sovereign Father. God is revealing his name to Moses and to Israel and to us in these chapters. Look at verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worship. Let's do the same. We have father, Lord. I just want to stop there the fact that we can call you father is amazing Lord I pray that, that the first thing that we think of when we think of you Lord one of the things that just jumps out at us, out at us is this fatherly love we see it through the characters of scripture we see to in Moses how gentle you were with Moses how stern you were with him at the same time directing him, protecting him, disciplining him loving him we see it with David it's why David could say I walk through through the valley of the shadow of death and I will not fear because he knows that you are in control even though death is all around him you are in control. And He trusts you. You make Him lie in green pastures. you prepare a feast for Him in the presence of His enemies, even though He doesn't know what is going on or why it's going on, He knows that you're good. Let us have that same confidence, Lord, that You are fatherly, that You love us, trust you and that you are sovereign and in control. In your son's name.